0: Hi,
1: I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast, the podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists, shaping the real estate industry and as a result, our world. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Fernando Andalucci. On the podcast, we learn what it's like to be a self-storage Renaissance man. Fernando walks us through self-storage deal making, his investment theses, and why self-storage is one of the most recession-proof real estate investments.
0: It's well worth a listen.
1: Hey, Fernando, thanks for hopping on the podcast today.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Gordon.
1: So could you tell me a little bit about yourself uh, for any of our viewers that might not know you?
0: Yeah. So uh, son of an immigrant, um, came to the United States basically with the American dream. So they wanted uh, that I you know go to school, get good grades, retire at the same company after 40 years and you know take a pension type thing. Um, when I was 16, that all changed. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then from there, my real estate journey continued. Um, I did get a degree in ag bioengineering, but then shortly after there, I started investing in single family and then multifamily. And then ultimately, now I focus 100% of my time on self-storage.
1: So we're a company that was founded by folks with that same immigrant mentality uh, just you know, 140 years back. Why, why commercial real estate? There are a lot of folks that come in and, and, and have that push to succeed. Why did you choose commercial real estate as that venue?
0: Yeah, so I found that uh, commercial real estate is one of the easier uh, avenues for financial freedom, um, especially when you're comparing it to other types of real estate. So for example, residential, it was like pulling teeth trying to get 50 to $150,000 loans. Um, Trying to raise capital for that was even more difficult and it was hard to scale our business. But uh, once we switched over to self-storage, our business basically took off. In the last four and a half years, we've done $220 million with the storage. And it really is easier when you start adding zeros onto your deals. Um, and then, you know, inside of commercial real estate, the self-storage space specifically, I really like because it is non-habitation-based real estate. So no one's living inside of my asset or my investment. I don't have to go through evictions. So it's just much easier Uh, way to financial freedom
1: so yeah that is deeply uh a deeply unique thing that i think most people don't always understand about real estate is that um sometimes bigger deals are actually uh, easier than smaller deals um that was something i certainly learned and i i'm a fourth generation broker and, and developer um and um one of the things i'm curious though about that is um why particularly self-storage? Because like, look, there's a lot of asset classes, even the commercial world. And look, I, I do not do residential real estate. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a proud uh, refer of many real estate deals over the years. And um, uh, there are plenty of, of uh, uh, residential agents in our area that have got to profit from that. But why, why self-storage in particular? Because that seems like an asset class that a lot of folks aren't particularly familiar with.
0: Yeah. So there's, there's a few reasons. So I'm an engineer by training, so numbers-based guy. So what I did was I looked over the last maybe 40, 45 years and compared self-storage to different real estate assets. And what I found is, you know, over, there was this study done by the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts. And it was a study period over roughly, you know, 30, 35 years. And during that time, you know, the average annual return of the S&P 500 was Seven and a half, eight percent multifamily and residential did a little bit better at about 13% return, but self-storage came in at a whopping 17 and percent average annual return. So that, you know, that four, four and a half percent may not seem like a lot, but you know, compounding interest is one of the, the miracles of the world. So if you had a hundred thousand dollars to invest at the beginning of the study period, the S&P would have turned around about half a million apartments and, you know, residential would turn around about 1.7, 1.8 million. But in storage you would have gotten about 4.1 million dollars back, so over twice your return that would come back just because of that extra, you know, 4% compounding. So then people say, okay, well if it's a high return, that must mean it has, you know, a high risk piece to it as well. And what we found is actually the opposite based on the data. So uh, self-storage pro- provides a very asymmetric risk return profile. So if you look at the last two, you know, tough recessions that are on recent memory, you have, you know, the the 0709 financial crisis where the S&P 500 dropped like 22%. I knew a lot of investors that they completely lost their shirts on residential and multifamily properties. Um from that same study in National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts, they found that self-storage dropped only about 3.5 to 3.8% in value during that time now we can fast forward to something a little bit more um uh recent which would be the the pandemic so according to TREP, which is a commercial mortgage backed securities research firm of the 1700 cmbs loans that were made to self storage investors in the first three quarters after the pandemic went into full shutdown mode there was only 3 that were over 30 days delinquent so that's a 0.17% delinquency rate um during that same period of time, multifamily was defaulting at a rate of one thousand eight hundred percent, or eighteen times the default rate of self-storage. So, as you can see, you know it does fairly well, and they call it a recession resilient asset. Um, and the, the data over the last five or six cycles have has proven that. So, those are kind of the numbers reasons. But then the headache reasons of why I got into self-storage was because, you know, being a Midwesterner living in Chicago. I start, first started buying residential properties in you know more challenging neighborhoods, C and D neighborhoods, just because I was chasing yield. And the eviction process that I had to go through on some of these properties were just so oh, ridiculous. I, imagine. Yeah. I mean, doing everything right. And it still take me eight months to get out a tenant that hasn't paid once since we bought the building. And then when they leave, they cost like, in damages from, you know, pouring quickset concrete down the plumbing. There's none of that in storage. Um, In storage, instead of it being tenant landlord law, it is property law or lien law. So the second you put your possessions inside of one of my facilities, you're de facto giving me a lien against your possessions. And if you don't pay, I overlock your unit first. And if you still don't pay within 30 to 45 days after being overlocked, Uh, then we auction off your possessions and usually we'll have a tenant right in line ready to enter the unit as soon as the current unit is cleaned out. It's all made out of steel and concrete, so there's not really any damage you can do. Uh, Everything is access controlled. So if you haven't even paid your rent, if you're late on your rent payments, you're not even allowed to get into the self-storage facility to do any damage, right? So um, much more safety as far as, you know, the, the rights that are afforded to us as owners and developers of these properties, as well as the risk-return profile.
1: Look, um, I think that's something as as uh, an investor who has uh, had, even in the commercial space, we're talking, you know, small industrial office has seen absolute horror stories o- over the years. I'm curious, um, particularly though, I understand some of the legal concepts. I'm a JD, but the thing that really makes me curious about the asset classes. Why haven't large venture funds really come into the asset class and dominated? If you get the same rate of return, I know for us uh, we're starting to see pretty large funds come into like Class B and C industrial, uh, less so than many of the other asset classes because of the level of friction, and we can talk about that. But what what makes um, self storage so unique in terms of um, you know that rate of return, and and, and you know maybe that's a, a difficult question but i'm just very very curious
0: yeah so uh that's actually what is happening right now you're seeing a ton of money being pumped into our industry over the last call it 10 or so years self-storage used to be kind of that ugly you know uh, stepchild that nobody wanted to talk to and if you weren't buying a 15 percent cap rate day one it wasn't a good deal but then all of a sudden all these real estate investment trusts, these private equity companies, hedge funds started to see the risk return profile and started aggressively pursuing this space. Um, They still have a a long ways to go before they dominate the market. There was a study that was done in 2018 that looked at the fragmented market of self-storage. So at the time, they said there was roughly fifty-two to 55,000 self-storage facilities. That number has now gotten up to between sixty and 70,000, depending on which research uh, you look at. And the industry ownership is broken down in a way that shows a lot of opportunity for aggregation and roll-ups, which is one of the things that we do. So about 18 to 20% of all the facilities in the United States are owned by the six largest publicly traded real estate investment trusts. You know their their names, you know their colors, you see them all over the place. The next 9 to 10% of the facilities owned in the United States are owned by the next 100 largest operators which I'm a part of, right? That means that there's over 70% of the entire space that is still owned by mom and pop operators. So if you look at the way that we do business, we kind of try to take advantage of each one of these pieces as being kind of a a portion in the feeding chain, if you will. So we go out to these mom and pops, we buy their facilities, we do value add and turn around, maybe even some expansion. Then we aggregate those into larger portfolios of 10 to 20 properties. And then we sell them to the second level aggregators that now they're, you know, putting together portfolios of 50 to 100, 200 properties, and then selling them to the top six publicly traded real estate investment trusts. So that was, that was one avenue of our, our vertical. But then what we noticed very quickly, and this is some of the friction that why you're not seeing the kind of institutional money really taking over the space very quickly, is that – you know, unlike a multifamily property where you can build a half a billion dollar property, because you just keep adding units and units and units, you can't really do that with self-storage. So on the mom and pop side, you know, you have facilities that are anywhere between 10 to 50,000 square feet. The second you cross over 50,000, then all of a sudden you start to see the cap rates drop by almost half, because now they're a large enough transaction that uh publicly traded company or institutional based investor is willing to spend the time and do the due diligence on it because it, it makes sense. So what we noticed is cap rates went from, you know, eight, 9% in that mom and pop space all the way down to four to 5% as soon as we crossed over into the institutional territory. So I said, well, we can't, you know, the goal is to have an 8 million square foot, between eight million and nine million square foot portfolio. So I said, we can't get to that number buying these 20,000 square foot facilities, but we can't afford to buy the ones that are larger. So we're going to have to build them. And so that's when we opened up our development arm where we build these class A REIT grade institutional self-storage facilities that are between 80 and 120,000 net rentable square feet. And then those can also be aggregated into larger portfolios and sold up into some of the top 20 operators will be interested in buying those types of things. So that was kind of the second you know, vertical of our business. Um, and then when COVID hit, there was a lot of issues with uh, supply chain. You know, if you could even get the product, you know, uh, what was the price going to be? So we saw things like steel go up almost 500%. And then oh, yeah. we saw that time. it was nuts. And if you could even get the steel, then you had these wait times that were almost ridiculous. I mean, eight to 18 months, depending on what type of materials you're trying to get. So, That's when we created our third vertical, which was going after these big box retail stores that had gone dormant um, and actually converting those using an adaptive reuse conversion into class A stores. So those are the three main verticals that we have. And the only area that you're really seeing kind of the institutional private equity hedge fund guys coming in is they're playing at the very top end of that market where, you know, if, if the property is less than $20 million, they're really not interested in it you know
1: yeah um, that's something we've seen very similar um in the uh kind of the class b and c industrial world um that's some somewhere where we've made um a lot of money over the years um in terms of going and and taking a look at uh some of the of the developments you've done and and i'm definitely going to follow up on the adaptive reuse Mm -hmm. cases but um, and I and I know you know we we always on the podcast want to tiptoe around anything that's proprietary. But sure. what what do you see in terms of um, an ideal deal that you're looking at when you're looking at either doing a development or you're looking at a redevelopment? Are there certain yeah. metrics that particularly stand out to uh, you as a great self storage investment?
0: Yeah. So you know, number one will be demographics drive everything. This is real estate. So location, 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 it doesn't <laughs> matter what type of asset class you're in, in real estate, the location is the number one. So, you know, right now we're doing, I think, just looking at my pipeline last week at our uh, all hands on deck call, we had about 140 million in the pipeline of just developments and people are saying well fernando you're crazy to do developments when i see all these articles of you know imminent recession coming in but you got to remember self storage is a recession resilient asset and it operates really well especially in locations that are benefiting from recession so for example the southeast we have seven projects right now between the tampa and orlando corridor where people are moving there in droves Home builders can't even put up homes fast enough. So all the same things that would make sense for a multifamily or even a retail location is what we look for for self-storage. High traffic counts and visibility. I want to be um, next to a dense residential, right? Where are my customers coming from? And then I want to be in an area that has an increasing and diverse population and job growth market. So, um, The interesting thing about self storage is that it's a hyper localized business. Typically, you're getting anywhere between 65 to 90% of your customer base is coming from a three to five mile radius or roughly a five to 15 minute drive time from your facility. So, when you're looking at markets, you have to look at super drilled down local markets. You can't say, hey, Chicago's great or Tampa's great. You can't even say, you know, the west side of chicago is great or the east side of tampa is great you really have to drill down and look at what is the um what is the supply and demand in that area and can they absorb new units as they're coming in so that's what i'm usually looking at for when i'm building a facility or uh, doing an adaptive reuse conversion of a big box retail store you know i'm going to be going Doing some uh, secret shopping of the competitors, making sure that they're all at stabilization or better. You know, in our industry, 90% occupancy is considered a good stabilization. If you're above that, that means that you're not pushing rents high enough. If you're below that, uh, either your rents are too high or you have oversupplied that market.
1: Yeah. So um, in terms of that, when you're looking for adaptive reuse, I'm curious what you're looking for. So we get calls on every once in a while, we'll have large industrial properties come available and we get calls, people asking, and I'd say, you know, self storage is probably one of the higher, uh, at least, uh, you know, in terms of volume that we get calls uh, based on that. Uh, what What's a good uh, uh, building or property that's uh, conducive towards effective adaptive reuse? Or is it just uh, a number of factors that, you know, I can't even imagine off the top of my head?
0: Yeah, I mean, you can, you can have kind of a back of the napkin type math or rule of thumb. So typically, for my type of redevelopment, I usually don't want to go into these projects unless, you know, I can put up at least an institutional grade amount of storage. So I'm always thinking with the exit in mind, our goal is to get to a 10-figure exit in 10 years uh, to one of these top, you know, eight or 10 publicly traded companies. So I'm not going to look at any facilities that I can't at least get 65,000 net rentable square feet. Um, and our typical efficiency based on, you know, locations of pillars and the uh, layout of the the box or the envelope is you know anywhere between 73 to 78%. So if I need to to get 65,000 that rentable, you know I'm looking at big box stores that are at least 85,000 gross square feet if not better. Um, I'm looking for things that have really good bones. So, you know, Sears buildings are a perfect example that Walmarts are a really good example that old grocery stores as well. Um, I'm typically staying away from the businesses that really were known to beat up their facilities. So, you know, Kmart's are a perfect example. And every time we walked to Kmart, everything was completely shot. The roof was bad. All the MEP was bad. It really just didn't make sense for us. Um, and then on the demographic side, again, these the nice part is these buildings were already located in areas that work for self-storage, right? They're typically around dense residential that has high median incomes that are on major thoroughfares. They have tr- high traffic counts of visibility because they're retail. They need these things. And all of that does well for self-storage as well. Um, other than that, Depending on the pricing, uh, I will also look at clear heights, so you know, typically we're buying these buildings at anywhere between eight to twenty bucks a foot, but there are other sellers out there that are trying to get almost double that for these vacant boxes, and I'm willing to do that if I can get a mezzanine level placed in. so like I was saying before, I need a building that's got call it eighty five to ninety thousand gross square feet. But let's say it doesn't have that. Maybe it's only 50,000 gross square feet. However, the clear heights are 24 feet to the rafters. That allows me to come in with a mezzanine level and literally build a second floor inside of that single story building, which allows me to double my footprint and make the metrics work both from a financial standpoint, but also from a size when it comes to exiting this class A asset to an institutional player.
1: So you've mentioned exit over and over again. Um, and I think we want to come back to that. But before we get to that point, how do you end up leasing these spaces up? Do you, is it you know predominantly uh, web advertising? Is it boots on the ground? How do you go through and do it? Is, look, there's a lot of ways that we do it on the commercial side, reaching right. B2B. How are you reaching business to consumer?
0: Right. So, uh, you know, I think it's a mix between your actual marketing uh campaigns and then also the the type of people you hire so we're a little bit different where when we're hiring a property manager the actual sales the profile we're looking for is really a salesperson because we want them to get people in convert and you know based on how the marketing is doing and then upsell so even though all of our facilities are built uh to be run completely remotely typically on the lease up, we'll have one to two full-time sales guys going in and and really pushing. So not only are, are they doing sales, you know, grassroots marketing, going out and creating partnerships with apartment buildings, pizza companies, uh, you know, assisted living facilities and saying, hey, you know, you send people our way, we'll cut you an Amazon gift card or, you know, some type of bonus for that. But then they're also, they, they have to convert on the the paid marketing that we're doing, which is going to be your SEO, uh, your PPC, uh, going on aggregator websites like, uh, Sparefoot. Um, but the biggest thing, again, it, even though we're in an information age, the majority of your. Customers, when you ask them why they chose your facility, is because they've they saw it either on their way home or on their way to work. So that's why visibility is so important. So one of the things I know you're you're talking about the industrial side of the world. You know, for us, we've been brought a lot of industrial properties to convert, but the problem is they're hidden back in these industrial parks that no consumer would ever be driving past. Only people that work in the industrial park. So we always will pass on those types of deals. so with us, you know, we're we're putting in a pretty hefty marketing budget on a monthly spend basis in the lease up period. But once we get to, you know, call it 90 percent occupancy, we can really lay our we can kind of take our foot off of the gas pedal on the marketing costs. And the rest of it is really kind of organic, uh, organic marketing that comes in.
1: Hey, That makes a lot of sense in the, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's a crazy world where I think we do digital marketing probably better than anybody else in our area. And I still say probably 35 to 40% of our business comes in from signage alone. So right. uh, that, that does not surprise me. Um, in terms of moving forward, and I wanted to follow up on on the exit. So what does an exit look like? I know, I know you're, you're syndicating deals and you're putting deals together and you're leasing them up and and things look great on paper, but what is an exit look like compared to, you know, somebody who might just be a, uh, you know, a lease and hold kind of investor?
0: Yeah. So I, you know, I've run the numbers on the lease and hold. The problem with that is because we're forcing so much equity into these deals, um, that model doesn't really make sense from the kind of the long view. Uh, so yes, I'm always going to have properties that I will hold kind of my retirement portfolio that I you know, it's pick them off as I go where I don't need to bring in any debt. I don't need to bring any investors. I'll just hold those cash as retirement money. But the majority of the deals I do, I bring in accredited investors, family offices to get those done. And they want a return on their capital as fast as possible. They want that velocity of money. So typically what we do is you have two styles of investors. You have the investors that are willing to take you know risks go into more opportunistic style investments um and then you have another type of investor that are more just kind of coupon clippers they want to invest then they just want to get their you know 5% cash on cash return, you know, every year, 6%, what have you. So what we do is we will typically use for any type of adaptive reuse, ground development, or heavy value add, we'll go with those more opportunistic style investors that want a higher yield to take on that risk. And then the second we have that, um, that facility stabilized and it's it's reached peak value, then we'll actually move it into a separate fund that is just income based it can be a dST structure it can be just a pure income play because the goal is to get to that critical mass that we can exit and get a a really good cap rate compression based off of the size of the portfolio so we're getting a premium on size uh you can't keep selling your assets right i mean this just came out in the news we're here in may this happened in april but uh public storage the number one uh publicly traded reit made an offer to buy life storage and the offer was too low and then extra space which is also so life storage extra space and public are all in the top six ExtraSpace saw the opportunity and they came in and they actually bought out Life Storage for $12.7 billion. So they came in and f- so you're seeing this further ag- aggregation that we're talking about uh, at the beginning of the podcast. So to get that type of multiple, you need to have a, pr- a good critical mass. And I think at about 80 to 90 class A, pretty homogeneous facilities, I'd be able to exit to one of those top six players at a, at a pretty good multiple above what the actual facilities are worth themselves because of that premium that's given to um, a larger portfolio size. So
1: look, uh, we've discussed exits and, and we've discussed what kind of what's happening right now. I think the biggest thing that's happening right now that everyone's talking about in the real estate space is the high interest rate environment. So I know this podcast is going to come out probably... You know, two weeks from now, but I think we're still going to be in a high interest rate period. Um, how has high interest rates changed the deal making process, or has it changed it at all?
0: It's so interesting that you use the word high interest rates because we're still historically at some of the lowest interest rates we've had in this entire country in the last hundred years. So yeah, it's of course. A returning to normal interest rates, not going to high interest rates. You want to talk about high interest rates, we can talk about the 80s, Paul Volcker years, or when we had 18%. So during the the 80s, during the Paul Volcker years, if people are really convinced by this high interest, I'm using that in air quotes, <laughs> high interest rate, yeah. um, that it, it changes deals, slows down deals, it doesn't. I mean, to say that real estate stopped... There was investment in real estate and development stopped in the 80s is ludicrous, right? So the thing that I think is important are kind of twofold. Number one is interest rates don't matter. All that matters is what is your real rate? So interest rate versus your inflation rate. And today, May of 2023, we are still able to borrow at a rate lower than inflation, which means we're literally getting paid to borrow money. So that's the thing that it... I it, People just need to be putting into perspective because they talk about interest rate, but they never talk about the other piece of the story. So hoarding cash right now is dumb because your cash is being eaten away, purchasing power is eaten away by inflation when you can go out and borrow for literally free, right? The second piece is, yes, the higher interest rates have squeezed debt service requirements, which I see as a good thing. In the last 10 years, not only in my industry, but in all real estate assets, a lot of people that had no business being in in the the business, if you will, they are now getting pushed out because they don't know how to do deals. They don't know how to structure deals. They're trying to come in with super high leverage. And that worked for a little bit just because the market wins were behind them. But now we're returning to reality and you can't be this, you know, gun slinging, shooting from the hip, deals will work out the longer we hold on to them type investor. Right. So it's been fantastic for us. Our deal flow has increased substantially as interest rates has increased because now we're competing against less people. And the way that we're able to get deal done is is twofold. One is obviously using appropriate leverage so that our debt service requirements are in check. The second piece is going back to kind of the forgotten art of creative financing and creative deal structuring you know, seller financing and assumptions of mortgage, that was such a common thing in the eighties and early nineties. And it seems like people forgot how to do them just because you can go to the bank and get a sub 3% mortgage. Right. Uh, so we have a lot of deals now that we're structuring very creatively with sellers where, uh, they're carrying the paper for us at rates that are half of what we get from banks. You know, sellers still want, their pricing and the unfortunate part when you're in a high velocity market where interest rates are changing so fast is that typically buyers are 12 months in the future and sellers are 12 months in the past so right now so i was saying well someone a broker told me my facility was worth x 12 18 months ago and i said it's worth x 12 18 months ago when i had financing that was Y 12 18 months ago so what i can do is you can either you're not going to sell this thing unless you come down to my price or I'm willing to go to your price if you offer me the type of financing that was available to me when your facility was valued at this number because a lot of people that's another piece they forget is that all they're so fixated on cap rate and on purchase price and that really doesn't matter because what matters is you have the other side of the equation which is the financing piece you know at a call it a 5% rate on a 25 year am uh you're paying twice your you're paying pay, basically buying your asset twice. You're buying it for its actual purchase price, and then you're paying the entire purchase price again in interest over that period. So what I'd rather do is say, hey, listen, Mr. Seller, you're asking for a price that's 20% above what I think market value is if I had to go use leverage available to me from banks today. But I'm willing to pay you your price if you give me a 4% interest rate, 10 years interest only, uh, no principal payments whatsoever, and a balloon of 10 years. Does that work for you? And if they say yes, then I'm willing to pay a substantial amount just because I know how to use a financial calculator and amortization tables, right? <laughs> so we have very creative ways to do this. We've done step-up rates where you know we try to really destroy the principal on the front end by saying, hey, it's gonna be a, we're going to have a 15-year term and every 4 years the interest rate's going to go up by 3%, but i'm going to start at 0% interest. So in the first 8 years i'm already almost having my principal owed on this deal because i know how amortization works, right? Another thing that we've done for call it more um Substantial value at any time that we have to get a major construction loan, you know, no construction lenders willing to be in the second position and most construction lenders won't even allow a second position behind them. So how do you get around that with creative deal structuring with a seller? Well, we can do is move them from the debt side to the equity side. We'll say, hey, you come in onto the deal as a JV partner, you contribute your property to the venture. And I'll make you a preferred equity partner, which means you get paid before everybody else except for the bank, right? And then I'm going to go to the bank and the bank is going to allow me to use all the equity in that property as my down payment, which is going to juice my returns to the investors and to the seller who's now in a pref equity position. And that allows us to get the deal done at prices that wouldn't work if I had to use you know, debt for the entire piece, right? And all of a sudden I'm walking into a property where I have $3 million of equity just in the land alone instead of having to pay that $3 million out. And I can use that as a down payment towards the construction loan.
1: Look, uh, we've been generally fans of the high interest rate uh, world for for a number of reasons. The The biggest one that you touched on at the start is just honestly, in a world without tailwinds, you know, the cream does rise to the, cro- uh, rise to the top. And then, second of all, the, the biggest thing is just getting creative. And, and it's, it's fascinating to hear some of the ways that you're getting creative in deal making. Uh, but the, the sad news is, I don't think we have a lot more time today to talk about some of those creative tips. But we do have time for our final four. And this is uh, one of the things on the podcast that we always love doing. It's our final four questions. It gives us a really good perspective on who we're talking to and kind of is a great way to round up the conversation. So, the first question of our final four, and one of my favorites, is what do you think's changed the most about commercial real estate in general? And how do you see the, particularly your section of the commercial real estate world, self storage moving forward?
0: Yeah, so I touched on this a little bit before on the self-storage side. We're, we're now seeing that self-storage is a sexy asset all of a sudden. After Time Magazine and Fortune <laughs> started writing about it, now all, we have all this money chasing it. But a lot of that money is unwilling to do the dirty work. So there is a huge opportunity for aggregation in this business, especially if you know what you're doing and you have the operations to back it up um i think we're going to see a lot more creative financing in the next 5 even maybe 10 years depending on what g- happens with interest rates um and then just the general appetite of this kind of this asset class coming out of the shadows and becoming more of a mainstream thing where now instead of people talking about what stocks they bought over Thanksgiving dinner and GameStop and all this other kind of crap, you know, they're going to say, Hey, I got invested in a self-storage, either real estate investment trust or in a, in a private syndication with Fernando, what have you. And I think that's going to help a lot of people beat that inflation trap that we're seeing occurring right now.
1: Look, uh, I think there's always money to be made. If you're willing to roll up your sleeves and get a little bit dirty, um, I know that's always been our advantage. Moving is trying to go on smaller, dirtier assets. Um, But smaller, dirtier assets are great. But I think one of the most unique things about trying to find those smaller, dirty assets is trying to travel back and and figure out how how to get to those assets. So when we're talking about traveling back in time, um, let's travel back to the start of your career. So when you were starting off, you're leaving high school. What's the career advice that you would have given a young Fernando uh, if it, if you could have just had you know a short one minute to uh, give your two cents?
0: Yeah, I would have uh, told told a younger Fernando to start bigger. Um, there's only so much time that we have in this life to invest and to make money, and to start with these you know twenty five to fifty thousand dollar houses, it was almost a waste of my time. Looking back now, so what I probably would have told Fernando is go to a commercial real estate um, symposium or, you know, one of these large events, conferences, and start walking around and seeing what opportunities are available to yourself. And then realize that you don't have to do everything on your own. So real estate is a team sport, and even if you get into a huge deal but only have, Two or five percent ownership of that deal—that's how you learn while making money. Uh, so you don't have to keep a hundred percent. You know, I'd, I'd rather have one percent of a watermelon than a hundred percent of a grape.
1: Hey,
0: uh, that's
1: been my my life thus far: slivers of a lot of big deals. Um, and uh, I would highly recommend that to anybody who's trying to dip their toe in the real estate water is. You know get your hands dirty, get on get in on a big deal, and uh, even if it's just a sliver, sometimes that sliver is is all you need um, in terms of trying to to learn and I, I know you talked about learning deals uh not everybody has the ability to reach out overnight, and maybe get to a symposium or 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 meet somebody in the business and one of the ways that I always like to recommend folks doing it is to reach out and learn a little bit about real estate or the business world through books. Uh, i've got a couple behind me uh if you you know look on that wall it's basically a wall of books um in terms of of books are there is there one or or two books that you've read that have particularly influenced your career
0: absolutely so the first is not really a real estate book specifically but it's a book on running businesses which real estate is a business and that would be traction <laughs> by gino wickman if you don't have an operating system for your business, then you're basically always being reactive and trying to put out fires as opposed to being proactive and building your business and scaling as fast as possible um so that's that's one of the the books I'd recommend and then the second is also not technically a business book it's uh, a book on how to have tactical empathy and that's never split the difference by chris voss uh, makes you a better partner makes you a better neg- i see it right there yeah better negotiator It makes you a, a better family member a better friend um, those two books i would say if you're just starting out in the space those two are gonna pay um, many times over the cost in time and in dollars well, I have to read the first one,
1: uh, but uh, Chris Voss is an excellent choice as well. Um, in terms of uh the most important question we're gonna ask you on the podcast. Uh that that comes right now. And the whole reason why we created the Real Finds podcast is to find out and and identify key voices that are influencing the real estate world and influencing the whole world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, because real estate is fundamentally the way in which we interact with um, the world, and so understanding that, is there a person that we should reach out to that's influenced your career, or that you think is influencing the world right now?
0: Yeah, uh, I would probably. I have a good buddy. Um, he is based out of Phoenix. He does self storage as well, but he has a kind of a different approach. He has more of like a Warren Buffett style approach, using a holdings company. Um, that uh they're completely vertically integrated so they'll actually they've bought the construction equipment company they've bought the uh the construction management company and the gc they've bought the metal doors and divider supplier as well and that's been able to uh, help them grow super fast so it's a buddy of mine his name is andrew Am- abernathy um the way he models his investments is very interesting so instead of it being a traditional syndication where you have distributions and you have you know cash flow and stuff like that there's none of that in his structure it's truly a it's like buying shares of berkshire hathaway right so the value comes from the underlying assets and companies that you own and every time there's an event where stocks are being sold you can you have the option to sell out or not may not be the best um style of investment for some people out there, but for those that don't need the distributions to live on and are just looking to, you know, maybe they have a retirement account or something like that that is trying to put away value, really interesting model that he created over at Abernathy Holdings. Uh, Well,
1: we have to reach out to Mr. Abernathy and and see if we can learn a little bit about what he's doing down there in the Southwest. Um, So the second most important question uh, we're going to ask you right now is how do you reach out to uh, Fernando and learn a little bit more. If somebody's in our audience or someone wants to invest, what's the best way to get in contact with you?
0: Yeah, so I can give you all the typical boilerplate answers, like go to our website, ssse.com. You can follow us on social media, you know, self-storage syndicate equities or triple se. You can follow me on social media, which is the storage stud. But what I find is, that doesn't really help people reach out to me, so what I usually do, which is a little bit unorthodox, is I'll give you guys my cell phone number. This is my real cell phone number. If you text me or call me i'll I'll answer pretty quickly. It's area code six three zero four zero eight eight zero nine zero, and the interesting thing is. I have gone on over a hundred podcasts. I've given away my cell phone number on everyone and I still barely get one or two people reaching out every couple of weeks. So it's, you know, be an action taker, reach out. If you want to learn more about uh, our business or self-storage in general, I'm, I'm here at your disposal.
1: Fernando, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today and we have to have you on in the future.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Gar.
1: Thanks again to Fernando. We appreciate his insights. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a five-star rating or review. Your comments, interactions, and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.